Good morning, everyone. I think we've arrived at the hour, uh, so I think we'll jump in. Uh, so we have our full time to engage in conversation about the topic this morning. Uh, welcome from wherever in the world you're joining today. Uh, my name is Sarah Avanja. I am a professor at the Boyce Thompson Institute for Plant Research here at Cornell University. I serve as director of the Alliance for Science, our host today. And today I'll serve as your moderator. So thank you all for joining us uh, for this, this independent dialogue. Uh, to offer a little background, this year, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has convened a food system summit as part of the decade of action to achieve the sustainable development goals by 2030. The summit will launch bold new actions to deliver progress on all SDGs for more sustainable and equitable food systems. In the lead up to the Food Systems Summit, the dialogues uh, are being conducted all around the world, effectively crowdsourcing sustainable solutions to strengthen local and global food systems. So these dialogues offer powerful opportunities for people everywhere to have a seat at the table. And indeed, the ideas shared here today in this dialogue will feed into the summit. So I thank you for joining today, and I especially thank you for, for sharing your views with us. In today's dialogue uh, titled, quote, what role will gene edited foods play in addressing nutritional insecurity? We'll discuss what role there may be for technology such as genome editing to contribute to ensuring safe and nutritious food for all while also ensuring food production is nature positive. Today, we hope to listen and engage in discussion on how we can use a game-changing innovation to address the action tracks of the Food System Summit and help us stay on track toward the SDGs that we're all trying to achieve by 2030. So a few ground rules this morning, uh, this afternoon, this evening, this dialogue follows Chatham House rules. Uh, and so for this reason, we ask that attendees not record any portion of the event, although the uh, event is being recorded by our team. Uh, including taking screenshots of the content or the participant list. We have um, sought permission from our speakers to be quoted or to, um, to uh, allow their, their words to, to, to appear on social media. Uh, that said, we do ask that you don't attribute any um, specific comments or questions to participants that are joining us today. Um, we hope that this can be a very engaging conversation. So we do encourage not only your questions, but please share it with us, your experience. Let us know who you are and where you come from. And you can do that in the Q&A um, box of the Zoom format. And in addition to that Q&A box on Zoom, you can also contribute to the conversation via Facebook where we're live streaming or by directing questions and comments to at science ally on social media. And we're using the hashtags this morning, um, hashtag UNFSS2021, that stands for UN Food System Summit 2021, and hashtag food systems. With that, uh, I'd like to introduce our panelists today. Um, our, I'm gonna introduce them in the reverse order in which they'll speak. Um, and, and so I'm gonna start by introducing Patience Koku. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Replenish Farms, which produces bananas, soy, maize, cotton, cowpea, and vegetables in Nigeria. She also produces seed. And Patience is a former fashion entrepreneur and took up farming in pursuit 
of a more meaningful occupation. She's a global advocate for smallholder farmers and access to improved seeds. She's a member of the Global Farmer Network through which she was honored with the 2019 Kleckner Award. Welcome, Patience. Uh, we'll also hear from Ambassador Dr. Miguel Jorge Garcia Winder. Uh, he was born in Mexico and he's an animal scientist by training. Currently, he serves as ambassador and Mexico's permanent representative to the UN agencies based in Rome, where he leads a team of Mexican experts advancing international cooperation to achieve a more sustainable, inclusive, resilient, and equitable world in the priority areas of agriculture, food, nutrition, rural development, biodiversity, inclusiveness, environment, and natural resources. Prior to being named ambassador, Miguel served as the Undersecretary of Agriculture of Mexico from 2018 to 2020. And prior to that, he was at the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture, IECA. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you for joining us. We'll hear from Dr. Lawrence Haddad, who was the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, GAIN. Um, that's a post he's held since 2016. Prior to joining, he was the founding co-chair and lead author of the Global Nutrition Report. From 2004 to 2014, Lawrence was the director of the Institute for Development Studies, the world's leading development studies institute. And prior to that, he was director at, the, at IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute. He's an economist and completed his PhD in food research at Stanford University. And in 2018, of course, Dr. Haddad was awarded the World Food Prize for his, quote, relentless leadership and advocacy in mobilizing political will to make nutrition the focal point of development stra strategies. We'll hear from Dr. Cecilia Queen, um, who uh, is currently an adjunct associate professor at the University of the Philippines at Los Banos in the Institute of Human Nutrition and Food. She took her PhD in nutrition at Cornell, very proud of that, and her MD at the University of the Philippines in Manila. She has served on several international research committees that have helped address child nutrition across Asia and beyond. And in the Philippines, she's currently the chair of the Philippine National Health Research System uh, Research Utilization Committee, and she was recently appointed as the chair of the technical advisory group to the Golden Rice Project based in the Philippines at the International Rice Research Institute. Um, finally, um, first, we will hear from Dr. Tom Adams. He's the co-founder of Pairwise, a mission-driven company that's using technology like gene editing to break down barriers to eating fresh produce. At Pairwise, he serves as the chief executive officer. He's over 25 years of leadership experience heading up biotechnology for global uh, companies. Formerly uh, a faculty member at Texas A&M University, he holds a PhD in microbiology and plant science from Michigan State and a BS in botany and plant pathology from Oregon State University. So as you can see, we have a, a fantastic lineup uh, today uh, with a, a range of different disciplines and perspectives. So with that, I'd like to jump right into the program. We'll hear from each of the speakers for 10 minutes, and then we'll engage in a dialogue with all of you. Please don't hesitate to go ahead and note your questions, your comments, your perspectives in the Q&A or on social media as we, as we move forward um, through the program. No need to wait until we get to that portion of the program. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to you, Tom. Great, thanks, Sarah. Um, let me try to share my screen here. Um, hopefully that's working. Um, great, thank you, thank you for that introduction and uh, look forward to the, the conversation this morning from, or this morning for me or uh, afternoon and evening for many of you. 
Um, thought I'd take a, a minute and talk just a little bit about the mission at Pairwise. And then since I'm the first speaker, I thought I'd spend just a little bit of time talking about gene editing and what it is and why it matters and how it matters in agriculture in particular and how we think about, about how gene editing can have an effect on, on many different challenges to agriculture. Um, so um, as Sarah mentioned, we founded Pairwise a couple of years ago now, and really with the, this mission here to build a healthier world through better fruits and vegetables. And the idea, this is, um, you know, this is a new technology that was emerging that really gives a lot of power in genetics to do more precise things with, with gene editing. And so much of this technology gets applied to really just a couple of crops, predominantly corn and soy that we, you know, feed to chickens and pigs and cows and cars, and we don't feed to people. And we really thought there's an opportunity to start applying some technology to things that make a, make a bigger difference to, to people's diets. And um, you know, there really is this, this significant challenge of getting uh, people to eat, uh, opportunities to eat healthier and more nutritious foods. And, and we've taken that on at Pairwise. So with that, um, CRISPR, just to take a second and describe what CRISPR is. When we talk about gene editing, the word CRISPR gets thrown a lot, around a lot. So that stands for clustered regulatory interspace short palindromic repeat. So there will be a, a question about that later. So everybody note that down. Um, that, that, but we, you know, we've come to know that as CRISPR. And this is a, a natural immune defense system, an adaptive immunity that mi microbes, many bacteria have to protect themselves from viruses. And what we've been able to do is take the, this tool that bacteria use to protect themselves and it can be um, modified to actually direct very specific changes in DNA sequences. Um, and that can be used to alter genes involved in abiotic stress, improve nutritional components, crop yield, and many different things in plants. So it's a very precise tool for breeding to, to, to make changes. Um, just to take one step back, this was awarded a Nobel Prize to Drs. Doudna and Charpentier in 2020, which is a, a really big achievement for a technology that's only a few years old to have had such a large impact and really has already been used to, to cure some previously incurable human diseases like sickle cell anemia and, and, um, and others. So really very powerful. And one of our co-founders, Fong Zhang, is quoted on the slide as making comment that really many of the applications of, of this technology, it seems like I went out of, um, Many of the applications of this technology um, really haven't even been imagined yet. The the way the ways that we can use this to to help uh, help solve biological problems. So here's how we think about CRISPR and ag um, and, and breeding as really a, a breeding tool. There are many different traits that exist in in very diverse populations of organisms. So you know we're doing some studies broadly on um, the the cane berries like blackberries and raspberries. And there's hundreds of different varieties of these berries that exist in nature from all over the, every continent, I think except Antarctica has different, different species of these that can interbreed and we can, you know, breeders can take these and, and bring traits together to create new varieties of berries. This is an example here of something that we're interested in producing in the longer run because we think that people could eat more cherries if they, were, if they didn't have pits in them and if they were available all the time. So it turns out that there are stone fruits like plums where variants have been identified that don't produce pits. So they're pitless plums. They, do, they aren't produced in, in, uh, commercially because 
they, they aren't a very good variety of plums, but they do exist as pitless plums. And they can do that because most of these types of trees aren't reproduced through seeds. They're reproduced by just taking cuttings and, and making more trees. So you don't need seeds to produce more of them. And in fact, if they did, they don't, you know, the progeny would be very different. So plums and cherries, breeders, can, breeders do and, and can cross plums and cherries together. They're closely related species. And you create new, 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 new trees from those. And those trees um, will all be different. None of them will be the same as the cherry was. But you could do, by, by traditional crossbreeding technologies, you could cross that over and over again and get back to something that approximated that original cherry you started with. And probably somewhere 150 years or so from now, you'd have a pitless cherry. But with the power of genetics and you know, what our ability to really understand the, the, the variation in, in genomes, we know exactly what the single change was that occurred in that plum. And we can bring that change into the cherry through gene editing technology by, by taking the, the fixed cherry and just altering that single gene. And then in a single generation, we could create what would have taken eight or nine generations to create through traditional breeding. So we end up with the, in the exact same place but we can end up there, there much more quickly. And this is just one example, but I think an, an easy one to see how you can move that single trait uh, forward. So just real broadly, um, you know, the, the, this concept can be applied to many different challenges that we see in agriculture that relate to genetics. There are lots of challenges in food systems that, that aren't genetic, but many challenges that come back to genetics, whether it's boosting nutrient content, improving, getting more consistent flavor in, in, uh, in fruits and vegetables, uh, removing the seeds and pits, like the example I, I just gave to make it uh, more easy, easy for people to eat. Environments are changing with, with climate change occurring and being able to adapt more quickly. Breeding can adapt to that, but can it adapt quickly enough to the types of changes that we're seeing? And, and using gene editing, we can make that happen faster. Certainly thinking about opportunities to adapt crops for carbon sequestration, uh, extending shelf life. Food waste is a major problem and being able to change shelf life can also change the availability of, of fruits and vegetables in different parts of the world. Adapting varieties to year-round production and, and finally enabling safer working conditions for things like removing thorns from berries or, or putting things in, in architectures that are easier for, for picking to occur. So with that, I think I I'm, uh, finish my opening remarks and turn it over to the next speaker. Thank you, Tom, um, for that. We will encourage everyone to go ahead and ask your questions in the Q&A. Um, no need to wait uh, until the end. Go ahead and post them there and we'll address them in turn uh, after all the speakers have completed their comments. Dr. Queen. Yes, good evening, good morning, and good afternoon to everyone who's joining this webinar. Thank you very much, Sarah, for inviting me to be part of it. I'm here to talk about uh, a country experience. So uh, we'd like to uh, share with you some of the agricultural innovations for improved nutrition that have uh, been done here in the Philippines. Now, why the Philippines? The Philippines is actually the first country in Southeast Asia to approve the commercial cultivation of a genetically modified crop for feed and food. Um, and this is not golden rice. Uh, golden rice, I think, is uh, 
probably the second or the third. The first one was really for BT corn. But like many low and middle income countries, we uh, are challenged by a number of nutritional problems, as you can see on the right. In the interest of time, I'm not going to go into detail, but we, uh, we face a lot of uh, micronutrient um, deficiencies uh, that uh, are largely uh, a contribute or are largely uh, because of a very um, monotonous diet. So you can see from the graph on the right, uh, the proportion of population groups with inadequate intake of iron. And uh, as you can see, uh, it can reach up to 100% for pregnant and lactating women because of very high nutritional requirements during that stage. The problem actually lies in the in the diet uh, that is dominated by uh, by the staple. So in this particular case, in the Philippines, is dominated by rice. So you can see from this figure that uh, dotted circle there is the uh, adequate um, intake, and except for rice, all the other food groups are not. Uh, consumed in sufficient amounts by our population. And that is why when you look at the contribution of rice to the diet, even if rice is not a good source of some of these uh, nutrients like calcium or iron or zinc, they con uh, rice uh, contributes such a huge proportion of these nutrients because there is no other source because people have rice and maybe a little of something else and that's it. And so that is one of the challenges that we hope that agriculture can address because agriculture being the source of our foods. So there are of course many approaches to improving dietary quality. Um, agriculture is just one of them or food production is just one of them. Uh, but many or almost all of them will require behavior change. And we know in nutrition that it's very difficult to change uh, dietary preferences or food preferences once they've been established and they get established very early in childhood. So you can see from this table, uh, some of the um, approaches that have been or are being tried here, um, not just in the Philippines, but, but globally. And um, aside from the behavior change, some of them also require considerable investments, um, especially uh, for the um, some of the um, agricultural and uh, and food processing interventions. Now, what we'd like to see in nutrition is. Uh, Right now, we're doing a lot of supplementation and fortification to address these micronutrient deficiencies. But these uh, technologies, I'm going to call them technologies, do not reach the people who need them most, uh, primarily, sorry, primarily because of uh, either the uh, access or the uh, cost of uh, these technologies. So many of our population rely on the nutrients from agriculture. So one of the ways that agriculture could help would be to through biofortification, which means that the nutrients are already in the crops themselves or in the food themselves, and you don't need to add them through processing later. 
uh, or post-harvest so that you reduce the unreached populations because if they produce the food themselves or they are produced very close to where they are, then you, you have less reliance on interventions like supplementation or fortification. And that can be reserved for those who are really profoundly deficient or who are really unreachable by other means. Now, this is a, um, a uh, compilation of different cost-effectiveness studies that have been done by, um, by Dr. Howdy Bowies and his colleagues at Harvest Plus. And what they've done here is uh, look at the cost-effectiveness of different interventions that would address dietary quality. Uh, as you can see, biofortification, which are the green bars, the dark bars and the green bars here, um, are more on the cost effectiveness side compared to uh, the other interventions like mineral for fertilization uh, or even supplementation. So uh, the cost effectiveness of biofortification, I think, is already well established. Now, in the Philippines, as I mentioned earlier, um, it wasn't actually golden rice that was the first crop that was uh, given approval, uh, the first GMO crop that was uh, given approval. It was BT corn. Um, and I mention it here not because it is uh, the product of gene editing, but because of its consequences or, or shall we say, uh, the effects on the regulatory processes as well as in the uh, sensitization of the population to the issues surrounding uh, genetic technology and its use in agriculture. But nevertheless, because of the support from the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Science and Technology, BT corn is now very widely adapted, but mostly for animal feed. So uh, this, uh, the corn is not really uh, used for uh, human consumption, but for animal feed. But this has helped farmers very much in terms of reducing the pest load, reducing their, um, their pesticide use, and of course, increasing their profits. Now, the, the real uh, game changer, of course, would be rice biofortification because it is consumed by so many and it's not just in the Philippines but all over Asia and many parts of Africa. So if we could improve the nutrient density of rice then we could be helping a tremendous number of people throughout the world uh, in terms of uh, micronutrient deficiencies. So there are I think as mentioned earlier um, several ways of uh, um, in, of breeding, uh, improving uh, the, the breeding traits of, uh, of a plant. So here in the Philippines, we have of course been uh, um, doing conventional breeding, but through ERI and our other uh, partners in biotechnology, um, the Philippines has now moved towards uh, transgenic biofortification and uh, the gene editing biofortification, as you can see on this table. The, currently, we already have high zinc rice that is available through conventional breeding, but Erie is working towards further increasing the zinc density of rice through gene editing and um, stacking that, the, stacking the, the uh, genetic values by also adding a high iron uh, not just uh, zinc 
to uh, to the traits that are in the rice grain. And uh, of course, we are working towards the inclusion of uh, of beta carotene in uh, in the rice through golden rice. And in this particular case, we are now um, we have uh, the Philippine government has given approval for golden rice to be uh, commercially propagated so that we can now do trials of golden rice uh, in the population. But the real, um, uh, how would you say, uh, I, I guess what has delayed, remember that golden rice has been on the horizon for I think more than 20 years now. Uh, what has been uh, delaying the, the progress in terms of um, utilization has really been uh, the safety assessment, the, the regulatory environment that uh, these kinds of uh, food products need to go through. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the experience with BT corn has sensitized the population to the extent that we have had problems um, introducing other um, biofortified products like eggplant uh, BT eggplant. So this is just a summary of the uh, safety assessment that um, these products go through at the moment. And this is already much improved over the hurdles that golden rice and BT corn have gone through uh, over the last um, decade or so. But what do we why do we need to go through these regulatory processes? There is a lot of potential in uh, transgenic biofortification. This is recent work that is ongoing in, in Erie. So the rice grain, um, um, well, the, the rice, uh, Erie has a gene bank that has uh, tens of thousands of genetic material uh, that have been collected over the years by countries throughout the world. And um, through the omics technologies, Erie is uh, trying to find out what nutritional benefits could be maximally derived from some of these uh, rice strains or rice uh, um, varieties that are available in the gene bank. And these are some of the uh, nutritional benefits that are emerging from that kind of research. If we will wait for conventional breeding to propagate the rice, uh, the right, the, these traits in, in the rice germplasm, it will take us hundreds, tens or hundreds of years. But if we can use um, uh, gene editing technology, this can reach populations and consumers much faster. And with that, I will uh, end and pass the floor over to um, the next speaker. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we look forward now to hearing from Lawrence. Uh, thank you, Sarah, and um, fascinating presentations uh, from Tom and Cecilia. I don't have any slides. Um, I wanted to, to do three things, really. Well, two things, mainly. I want to just describe quickly the nature of the problem we face very quickly and then share with your audience some of the lessons learned from the work that uh, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition or GAIN has been doing. Our mission is to improve the consumption of safe, nutritious food for all, especially the most vulnerable. And 
while we don't do work on gene editing per se, we're always looking to see how can we make safe, nutritious food more available, affordable, and desirable. So I'll share some lessons from that. But first of all, I mean, the, the potential seems limitless in terms of what can be done with uh, gene editing and, and CRISPR. And I think Tom's presentation made that very clear. And Cecilia's presentation made it very clear that it's going to take brave, bold activist governments to, to make that a reality. Why do we need this technology? Well, 3 billion people, 3 billion people worldwide, according to the UN, the State of Food Insecurity Report, comes out every year, 3 billion people cannot afford a healthy diet. 1.5 billion can't afford a diet that is minimally nutritious. So a healthy diet includes social cultural patterns and things other than nutrition. Um, 1.5 billion can't afford even a minimally nutritious diet. And that, that 3 billion and the 1.5 billion, they're really kind of flaws because even if we know that even if people can afford a healthy diet, not all of them will actually consume a healthy diet. Um, we know that uh, the consumption of foods like fruits, vegetables, pulses, nuts, uh, eggs, dairy, these fish, these kinds of foods, um, they have to be convenient. They have to be tasty. They have to be somehow sanctioned by peer groups in order for them to be of value socially. Um, very often, nutrition is the last reason people consume certain foods. There are a whole range of other things that people take into account. So what we've learned from GAIN, I would, I would cluster into, into three headings, uh, desire, trust, and access. <clears throat> so desire, trust, and access. So under desire, you know, I think the, the first wave of GMO crops failed so spectacularly in terms of the, the war of public, uh, public relations was because they didn't really tell consumers what's in it for the consumer. To, to take the leap of faith to buy these things? Is it, is it better taste? Is it better stability? Is it better safety? Is it better life shelf? Is it lower price? What is it that the consumer gets out of it? And so I think initially there was a lot of consumer and still is a lot of consumer skepticism. And we see this in our work at GAIN. Um, so consumers have to want it. That is the ultimate driver. Yes, farmers have to be able to uh, make uh, an increased profit. They have to it has to reduce the risk for farmers. Yet farmers are absolutely critical, don't get me wrong. But farmers are necessary. Consumers, if we can get consumers interested, that's sufficient. So consumers have to want it. What's in it for them? Is it better taste? Is it a better look? Is it a better smell? Is it a better feel in the mouth? Is it lower cost? Is it greater convenience? Is it better for nature? And last of all, really, we found the last, the thing that is least on people's mind is, is it better for their nutrition and health? So you have to start where consumers are and link health and nutrition to where they are, rather than say, you really should be eating this because it's, it's, it's nutritious for you. So I think that's the first thing we have to take consumer desire very seriously and really don't assume anything about it. It's a, it's a really important area for research. Second area is about trust. Um, 
in the in the work we've been doing at GAIN and in the work I've been doing on the UN Food Systems Summit, I'm the chair of the of the action track that uh, is ensuring, trying to ensure, trying to generate solutions to ensure safe and access safe access to safe and nutritious food for everybody. Um, nature friendly narratives are very powerful. Um, more people really care about nature than they do about uh, nutrition. It's 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 interesting and it's 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 a challenging observation and I don't have any science behind it actually, but my observation from talking to hundreds and hundreds of people in our action track is that many many people, I would say the majority, are motivated actually by is this going to leave a lower environmental footprint for the planet. Is it going to reduce greenhouse gases? Is it going to promote biodiversity? Is it going to improve the nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus um, uh, cycles? Is it going to take the pressure off land use so that we run the risk of less zoonotic episodes? Um, is it going to um, be kind in terms of water use? These and is it and what's it going to do to energy use? These these are very important drivers for very many people and rightly so. Uh, and so anything you can do to link, uh, I think, gene-edited foods to a, nat a positive nature narrative, regenerating nature, nature positive, this is very good. And I, I kind of noted in Tom's presentation, there were hints of this, hints that this is, this, uh, this is gene editing is essentially speeding up a conventional, natural, traditional process. And I think that's that's really the way to go. For many people, however, this will be lost on them. They will just see this as GMO and they'll lump it in to the transgenic uh, work. So I think we have a really, one of the chats in the comments was really science is one thing, but the, the framing of the communication around the science is absolutely critical. Uh, it, could, it could set it back for 10 years, by 10 years if you get it wrong. Still on trust, um, I think you need that nature-friendly narrative. But I think we also need, as Cecilia showed, and what the biofortification people have done so well, is to uh, line up studies, get the, get the research program going. Is the adoption of these new crops um, good for farmers? Is it good for consumers? Is it safe? Is it environmentally friendly? Is it commercially are commercially viable. These, these studies are really important and they must be done you know, to the highest level of rigor independently by universities such as Cornell and actually even better by universities in the countries where the crops are being adopted, perhaps supported by uh, universities from around the world. That's really important. But even then, um, GAIN works with Harvest Plus on, on commercializing biofortified crops. Even the term biofortified crops, even though it's from conventional breeding, that term biofortified is contested by many people that we're trying to convince. And we often end up having to use the term nutritionally dense staples because that people, people don't find that language threatening, but they find biofortified crops terribly threatening. So again, we just have to be very, the, the trust issues are, are really deep and deep rooted and must be taken very seriously. And then finally, on the access side of things, we have to get the intellectual property right for, for these kinds of crops. Um, they have to, this, these seeds have to be affordable. 
for smallholder farmers. They have to be affordable for small and medium enterprises, especially in places like Africa, South Asia, and I would say Southeast Asia, where smallholders, small and medium enterprises are still the backbone of food systems and will be the backbone of food systems, especially for those on lower and middle incomes. Um, most, most people on lower and middle incomes, even in rural areas, buy their food. There's a myth that, that lower and middle income people in rural areas consume, most of what they consume is what they produce. That's a myth that the data, the World Bank data and other data just show that to be a myth. Um, they, they purchase at least two thirds of their food, even in low income rural uh, communities. And if they're purchasing food, they're interacting with smaller medium enterprises in the value chain. And those smaller medium enterprises are being supplied with food, usually by smallholder producers. So the IP has to be right for, for this technology to be accessed uh, by, by small and medium uh, producers, pro processors, marketers, distributors, suppliers, cold storage um, folks, um, all of those folks, they need access to these. Um, I think wherever possible, working in a public-private partnership mode is really good because um, that reassures um, farmers, processors, and consumers that the public sector has a stake in this, that has, has endorsed it in some way. Uh, those PPPs have to obviously be designed in a way that is in the public interest, in a transparent way, in a way that's governed properly, in a way that cannot be um, distorted because the public and the private sector very often have different levels of power um, and certainly different levels of recourse in the legal field. So they, PPPs are important, but they have to be designed well. And I think wherever possible, work with the United, United Nations. Um, the Biofortified uh, Crop Community did this very well. They, worked, they formed a good partnership with the World Food Programme. The World Food Programme is a massive procurer of food. And if the World Food Programme is procuring food that is biofortified, again, a big signal to civil society and a big signal actually to the private sector that these kinds of foods are here to stay. So those are just, Sarah, some reflections from me about the need to pay attention to the desire of consumers, the need to build trust and don't assume it's there, and, and the need to really focus on access to key actors in the food system, especially key actors for those who earn that three billion who can't afford a, a healthy diet. Back to you. Thank you so much. Um... We recognize that you do have to leave at the top of the hour, but we hope that we'll be able to at least get one question uh, your way before you have to depart. Uh, we're gonna now turn to the ambassador for remarks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sarah. We hope you can listen to me well, because we have storm in Rome, so hopefully we continue with the internet. Um, it is very humbling for me always to share the stage with such a distinguished buyer group of managers, and I appreciate their knowledge and their comments. Uh, I think this event is very well timed as we prepare for the summit next uh, in Europe. There is a great deal of expectations. And certainly, there is also a great deal of doubts about the outcomes of this summit and the implications for the future. Uh, personally, I am convinced that the summit has already generated an important outcome. 
And that outcome is that it has put on the discussion table the important role of uh, food systems and the role that these food systems have for the future of our world and our humanity. Also, it has allowed us to recognize that the current state of affairs is not only not enough to secure a sustainable future, but also has highlighted the gaps and deficiencies that their current way of doing things uh, and the impact they have for the integrity of the planet and not the creature that we live in this, in this, called, uh, in this place called Earth. As, as, uh, in the invitation uh, that I received to participate in this panel, one of the objectives was to motivate the discussions and to try to take out of the box on this issue. Um, and especially to try to think how gene editing uh, could have an impact on nutrition security. Trying to follow this invitation, and, uh, and people will probably think I'd like to steal the pot. I would like to put uh, some ideas. Uh, these are my personal views, and I have to reiterate. These are my personal thoughts on the potential role of gene editing to address the issue. And put on the table what, in my view, should be considered by gene editing professionals uh, for this technology to have a true impact on uh, nutrition security. As um, the previous uh, speaker has suggested, we need to start by realizing that nutrition security is a very complex process that goes beyond the issue of food security. The concept of nutrition security considers not only the four components of traditional definition of food security, but also considers the nutritional value of foods and the systemic factors that impact them. In that sense, nutrition uh, security encompass food security, health, care, and what's happening at the, house, at the home or the house environment. So the first thing is that we need to ask is what role if a gene editing could play in this, in this complex process called nutrition security. Clearly, clearly we can argue for the role of in food security, particularly in the availability portion of the concept, and also on the nutritional value of the food that we have seen in the previous speaker. But certainly, in editing has little to do with environment, care, and what happened at the house at the household level. If we look at the food security component of nutrition security, gene editing will potentially have an impact on availability and on the quality of food with limited impact on the access component, except when it's related to the potential gaining income, and certainly little or nothing on how we use the foods at the home, at the home place. As such, gene editing is only one of the potential tools to address the issue of nutrition security, but by itself is insufficient to address the total complex of nutrition security. I made these comments because I want to highlight that solving the food security and the nutrition problems require much more than technology or technological innovation. There are other factors of the economical, social, political, and nowadays environmental nature that have as much impact on nutrition as the availability of good nutrition food. I am inclined to believe that we will have to address this social and environmental issues before we can fully take advantage of the technology benefits. The benefits of technologies such as gene editing will get lost if we do not solve the human problem. 
before. In doing this, we must give particular attention to women, race, and ethnicity equality. So my first recommendation for gene editing experts and companies and professionals is to consider the complexity of the social reality, particularly outside the developed world before embarking in one size fits all solution. In relation to the availability uh, quality of food, especially looking 23, 20 to 30 years down the road, the potential gene editing to significantly contribute to them appears to be clear. As, as you have heard from the previous speakers and you probably hear from the following speakers. However, there is a need to review the way in which gene editing will be positioned to address them uh, and preventing the mistake. And in doing so, we need to prevent the mistake that had been done and currently continue to be done with traditional GMO and other technologies. Gene editing needs to be positioned to, uh, to address the pressing challenge of our time. And unless we show that gene editing will help us to address the pressing challenges of our time, the technology will be assessed. For example, we need to show that gene editing will increase productivity without increasing the agricultural frontier. We need to recognize that gene editing, uh, we, we need to see gene editing is important recognizing the multiplicity of production systems and not only focusing, focusing on the monoculture production system as previous technologies have been done. We need to show that gene editing has the potential to address the mitigation and adaptation problems, to address the issue of climate change and how will this technology will help to reduce greenhouse uh, gases emissions, including the regulation of entire production by large, including, and you know, and also what the impact will be on, in the other cycle that the previous speaker had already mentioned. One issue that we need to address, and it's very important that we start thinking is how gene editing will help to maintain biodiversity. And we'll recognize the rights of people and nations to their natural resources. How gene editing will help to restore soil health, maintain water equilibrium, maintain water health. Uh, those are issues that we need to address. It's not only about producing food, but it's all these are the present issues of the day. How gene editing will reduce the use of chemicals and pesticides. By the way, this is in my mind one of the greatest mistakes of current technologies. At associating technology with the use of certain pesticides. And finally, I think we need to address the issue of how gene editing can be incorporated with and at the same time incorporate traditional knowledge and the recognitions of the right of the people to the natural resources. Furthermore, in order for gene editing to be truly accepted as a tool for nutrition security, there are other aspects that need to be addressed. Among them, the need for increasing capacity to understand, develop, and use this technology in middle-income and low-income countries. We need to, to invest in capacity building for these technologies. We need the need. To, uh, we have the need to strengthen institutions, policies, and processes, create greater accountability, accountability and transparency for all actors. And then we need to ask the question is how we are going to distribute the benefits across the entire system. Uh, we cannot continue with that consolidation of benefits in one small portion of the population. 
As we move forward toward the summit, and especially into the future, we need to rethink the way that we have acted. We need to become more responsible with our planet and with its people. We need to stop the relentless pursuit of economic profit and rethink our relationship with our environment and among ourselves. Can anything help us? I believe it can help us, but the true answer is in our hands. I hope these thoughts will motivate a more uh, candid and open conversation on the use of the technology. The science is clear, but we need to translate the science to the social benefit and the benefit of our mother. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Ambassador Garcia Winder. Uh, we're now going to turn to our final speaker, Patience Koku. Patience, I think you may be on mute. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Um, it's been a very interesting conversation um, so far. Uh, and I think that for me, it's, um, it's the fact that I see the Food Systems Summit um, raise hope um, that it can indeed be um, a people's summit where there is inclusiveness and where everyone, everyone's um, uh, input is brought to the table in order to get us on a path to sustainable agriculture or sustainable development and be able to meet the SDGs. Um, and, and also to not make the mistakes of the past, because um, I think that if we say in, in nine years, we hope to achieve so much that we have failed to do in the past, then we need to look away from the same mistakes that we made before. I've listened keenly to the, to the conversations today. And I think that it brings us back to so many things. COVID-19 has shown us that our food systems are not sustainable, that they're not resilient, that we have a major problem. We have gone backwards rather than, than forward. And it has shown us that there are more hungry people in the world post COVID-19 than they were before. As a farmer, and as a person who lives in Africa, I think that there is a selective acceptance to gene editing. The speed with which we were able to get the COVID-19 vaccines speaks to the fact that we accept gene editing for um, the purposes that we feel um, benefit us. The world is a, is a huge globe. There are people in different spheres and in different places. And I think that the Food System Summit is an opportunity for us all to get a, a voice in there to say, look, gene editing has so many benefits. For me, I think for the world, but for Africa in particular. Africa has not been able to treat stuff like um, sickle cell and so on. And GE has those tools that is a tool that is able to do that. Now for food and for farmers. Now, a lot of the questions that are being asked, to me, I believe the information is out there and it has been clearly spelled out. We are growing BT, BT cowpea, I'm growing it on my farm, and it has greatly reduced my use of chemical. It's not GE, but we're saying that GE has the potential to produce food, crop that we can grow, that can be nitrogen efficient, will increase production. Now I'm linking production to nutrition because where there's a scarcity of food, there will be malnutrition. 
So we have also the fact that for the first time in our country's history, we were buying cowpea, which is the poor man's protein in my country, for ridiculous amounts of money and most people could not afford it. Now, it was because we had a bad crop. So if GE can, forty, can help our crop, enhance our production, if it can fortify our nutrients in our food for people who don't have the money to buy the food, and they can eat, say, for instance, most people eat sweet potatoes as a meal, right, with nothing else. If they ate some vitamin or protein or whatever in the sweet potato, it will help greatly. So if we're talking, I live in a country where you see stunting every day. You see children who are year high and they are uh, seven years old and they look like three-year-old children in other countries. We live in, in a country where we are still having crop that we grow that is below one ton per hectare. Our production is poor. He, we, we've said so many things that there is no one size fit all, right? And this, I, don't, I haven't seen that with GMO or with, with GE because with GMO, it has been fitted to my country. So we are the first country in the world that's growing BT cowpea. And the reason for that is that this is a crop that is so vital to nutrition in Nigeria. And it has been, you know, and it was provided not by, in quotes, um, uh, big seed companies that will be at a, at a cost that is not affordable. So this was provided by a lot of private uh, and public sector um, partnerships that work together to ensure, and, I, and I'm sure that's what's going to happen with, with gene editing. So I think that when we, when we look at the big picture and we're looking at the food system summit and the conversations that are going on, we are going back to the same arguments that we brought on GMO. We have accepted that B, uh, G, GE can speed up the process for us medically for stuff that benefit us. What about the things that benefit the other people in the other countries who don't have access? So when you speak to nutrition and you speak about nutrition in say the United States of America, I can choose, people in the US can choose to eat fruits or not to eat fruits, not because of affordability or availability, but when you are speaking to people in, in underdeveloped countries where it's a matter of life and death, you pass up meals because you cannot afford them. And if the production is poor for farmers, it means the prices go up and more people are hungry. If the SDGs must be met, if we are truly saying that it is a summit, that hopes to, to bring us on the path because it is not the only solution. GE is a tool in, in the box. And when you look at the way that farmers farm, right? And you look at the technologies that are available. If I'm going to use less chemicals, less, less pesticides, less uh, um, every, so I'm basically using less, right? And I'm growing more with less. So I'm solving a lot of problems by using you know, crop that has been enhanced or developed or improved to help me be more sustainable. I think that if we are truly, honestly speaking about a food system summit that will not be paperwork that will go shelved somewhere, and we really do want to solve the world's, world's food problem, we must accept every tool in the box. If we speak to the rights of the people who want to maintain biodiversity, um, um, GMO or GE, helps us to maintain biodiversity. We have drought resistant uh, crop. 
We will use less water. We will use the world's water more economically. We will grow our organic matter in the soil by using cover crop. So there's a mix already of tools that farmers use in collaboration with a modified crop that makes our world more sustainable. Let us move away from the bias. We can't pick and choose if we want insulin or if we want COVID vaccine. And when it comes to food, that is, that is, it's, it's a dire need. It's a matter of life and death. We begin to look at all the other things that we feel, you know, um, don't, don't make it right for us. Access is so important, right? So when we go to the Food Systems Summit dialogues and we pull out what we do and we bring to the final summit in September, my hope is that our, our hopes will not be dashed, that it will truly be an inclusive dialogue that will bring us on a path to together collectively the whole world moving towards food security and not just one part of the world continuing to prosper and be able to make choices and other people not being able to. Thank you. Thank you, Patience. Um, I think a lot of your comments uh, touched on issues that had uh, been surfaced, but to hear it from a producer uh, who's, who's producing food and struggling to produce nutritious food in the face of climate change is, is so valuable. Um, Lawrence, if we have you for uh, time for one question, I'd just like to, you know, I always like to end with a call to action, but I'm gonna jump right in and talk about action. Um, so, you know, we, I think we've heard that gene editing can um, has a role to play. It's a systems-wide solution um, and, and relates to all of the five action tracks of the Food Systems Summit. But I want to hone in on action track one, which is most uh, relevant to the topic today, how we can use this technology to ensure a safe and nutritious uh, food supply for all. So let's dive in there. I want to hear from you what actions need to happen. So gene editing has the potential to help meet this, this goal of, uh, of providing food to feed the many um, while being nature positive. What actions need to happen to allow gene editing to achieve that, to, to help achieve the SDG uh, target 2.1, safe and universal access to safe and nutritious food, or to end all forms of malnutrition, SDG 2.2? Um, since those are general targets for action one. Your, your quick perspective before we lose you, please. Yeah, I, and Sarah, I can stay for another 10 minutes, uh, no problem. Um, you know, my my view is the what's happening in the summit is that there's there are two processes going on. There's the national dialogues. So there's the independent dialogues like this. There are national dialogues, and the national dialogues are generating national pathways. So um, Ethiopia, for example, will say, um, we've had our five dialogues. We've brought all uh, government, business, civil society, researchers, scientists together. These are the 10 priorities for us. Now, I think the, the GE community needs to, needs to look at some of the priorities that are emerging. Let's say a priority is we want to make uh, vegetable consumption. We want to double vegetable consumption in the next uh, five years. What can GE do? to support that priority. So that's my point about um, going where countries are. I think countries are, countries, countries, I think as our last speaker said, you know, countries are very pragmatic. They will do whatever it takes to make nutritious food, safe food available to all their population. 
So they don't have the luxury of choosing to eat organic or not organic or GMO or not GMO. They, their choice is to eat or to not eat. Um, so, so many countries are very pragmatic about this. I think you have to link the GE, the things that GE can do around nutritious foods to the things that countries need. And for me, the kind of no, no regrets class of food to start off with is are the perishable plants, the fruits, the vegetables, and to some extent, the pulses. These are foods that are essential for all forms of malnutrition. All countries don't consume enough of them. They're good for undernutrition, non-communicable diseases, obesity, hypertension, diabetes. It's a totally non-controversial um, food. Uh, it's a food that's potentially very affordable for everyone. And, and yet it's a food that has challenges in terms of storage, wastage, uh, taste, um, all those kinds of attributes. So I would, I would start in a food that is universally needs to increase its consumption in all countries and, and say we, we can offer uh, an accelerated pathway to more nutritious, more, more safe, more, more tasty and more affordable fruits, vegetables, and, and pulses. Back to you. Thank you. So picking up on that, um, Cecilia, I want to ask for your perspective um, from a, a so-called you know, lower middle income country, and then I'm going to ask the same question um, to, to Tom uh, from a so-called developed country perspective. So what types of innovations um, you know, using gene editing do you think would be most valuable uh, to those um, working to improve nutritional security in a lower middle income country? Um, how, and specifically, Sarah. how can gene editing uh, get us there? Um, mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, um, so I, I think that uh, that was what I was trying to, um, to say in my presentation that because in low and middle income countries at the moment, uh, people are consuming mostly staples, that that's a good place to start. This is not to say that we want to, for people to just eat staples and that they should not eat fruits and vegetables. No, that's not the message. But given that current capacities in countries uh, in, in the agricultural sector are mostly uh, in the production of staples. Then if you can improve, as Dr. Haddad has said, the nutrient density of these staples, you already go a long way towards um, making that more accessible to them. While it's true that even in rural communities, they buy the food, well, they buy most of the food that they eat, they do consume a lot of what they produce themselves. And the cost of a nutritious diet, at least here in the Philippines, it has been studied that if people are able to produce their own food um, and they produce enough for themselves, you are able to reduce the cost of a nutritious diet, I think by about a third or by about half. And if they produce even more so that they can sell, then the cost of a nutritious diet goes down even more. So I think that's the value that gene editing can bring to a low and middle income country to start there. Now, whether they would like to focus on 
a staple or a fruit or a vegetable, I, I think that really depends very much on the country context. Uh, for countries like us, we really need to, to start with rice and to some extent corn because uh, about uh, half one fourth of our population also uses corn as a staple. So, so that, that's, that's part of the decisions that countries need to make. But uh, having the floor, I hope you don't mind. I, I'd like to also um, address some of the questions that are in the box. Uh, um, especially with regard to where do we start with these countries. And, and I would say that it really starts with capacity building, uh, getting local scientists um, and to, to speak about the problem so that people can hear it from, uh, from local experts. I think makes a big difference because local experts can translate the science, I think, much more effectively than an, an expert, a global expert, even if the global expert knows more. But the translation to the local context, I think, uh, can be much aided by a local expert. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Tom, we've, we've, we've talked about the three categories uh, of learnings from GAIN, desire, trust, and access. Um, I, I think those are really relevant to, to the work you're doing. Um, honing in on desire, perhaps, in the developed country context, what types of innovations would be most valuable to those working to improve nutrition security in a place like the US or um, a so-called developed countries? And what challenges can gene editing address in that type of food system where well, we certainly do have nutritional insecurity, but perhaps a slightly different form of it. Yeah, thanks for the, the question, Sarah. I think this is it's quite daunting to, to see the breadth of questions coming in and the in the chats and and the and the, the conversations that, that have gone on so far. It's quite a quite a broad spectrum of things. And I think it's important to recognize that that genetics and gene editing is one component of the food system. It's a very important component, but there are many other pieces to how, how we get food and, and uh, they all have to work together to, to provide nutritional security. But when we talk about gene editing specifically and the genetic component of, of food in, in developed countries, I, I liked your comment, so-called developed countries, because I think even in, in developed countries, there's a very broad uh, array of, of access to, to nutrition. But um, the, um, you know, I think we started, you know, at Pairwise, we, we started with the, the realization that only 10% of people are actually eating fresh fruits and vegetables, the recommended amounts of fresh fruits and vegetables, the majority of people don't. And on average, about people eat about 50% or less of the, of the recommended amounts of fruits and vegetables. And when you see the movement there, it tends to be things that make it um, take down barriers that people have, help the fruits and vegetables fit into people's lives better. Um, so I gave the example when I was speaking about removing a pit from a cherry. Seems like kind of a trivial thing, but if that makes it so people are, are willing to eat more fruit and, and put them into what, what have become sort of snacking diets, I think that's a very important outcome that you get people eating more fruits and vegetables and, and less of the calories that come with, with processed foods and um, less calories, salts and fats that are coming from processed foods. So, you know, that's, that's one path. I think, you know, another challenge I could go on, but maybe um, I, I mentioned shelf life and I think it's a really complicated, it's a, complicated from a couple of different angles, both from a food waste angle that 
um, there's a lot of waste because shelf life. It, so if we can extend shelf life, both through genetics and through some of the, the great advances that are happening in processing and storage technologies, um, we can extend shelf life. That can also change the distribution systems in developed countries. So, you know, we hear about food deserts in, in developed countries, and some of that's because of the way distribution works, that if you don't have large grocery stores, distribution it doesn't come as frequently, they aren't able to bring fresh fruits and vegetables in. So if you could extend shelf life, you could actually change the whole way distribution works. And now some of these smaller stores that we see that that currently probably the healthiest thing is a rotten apple and you're, you're comparing that to a hot dog or a Twinkie or something like that, you um, you now could start having you know fruits and vegetables there because we've extended the shelf life. So I think there's a, a big opportunity there. And then finally, I, I talked just a little bit about the changing climate and, and changing conditions. And we see the the droughts that we're having in, in North America that are and, and other parts of the world that are having big effects on places where lots of fruits and vegetables are are grown. And I think that's something that's a big threat. And being able to you know, breeders have for years been able to keep up with changing environments because you're selecting varieties that are going to do well in an environment. But when things are changing so rapidly and so quickly, um, the ability to do that even more efficiently than we've done through traditional crossbreeding, I think is a really important thing to be considering. So I think uh, that's, a, that's a couple of things to think about. Thanks for that. Um, I'm seeing a lot of uh, comments in the chat about um, a lack of, of proper nutrition in, in very specific country contexts from Bangladesh um, to Ghana to Nigeria when patients pointed out the important role that cowpea plays in, as a protein source. We haven't talked a lot about livestock. And so I'm gonna to turn to our animal scientist and uh, ask him to comment a little bit on the role that um, gene editing uh, can play in improving uh, livestock and the, important, uh, the importance of animal protein, particularly in, in a developing country context. Um, thoughts on, on that, Ambassador? <laughs> Thank you. I I should not have brought the issue of livestock, but I normally have livestock in my in my genes, so I can use a CRISPR cut to replicate me on the livestock. Now, I I, I think uh, livestock is one of those activities that has been chastised, sometimes uh, rightly so, for some of the contributions that we have done wrongly to the environment. Uh, but we cannot forget that the livestock uh, products are very important for nutrition, especially in the younger part of our life. So. Uh, I think we need to rethink um, how we address livestock. Uh, there, is a, there is a very interesting book called Hunger by uh, an Argentinian author. And in the first chapter, he asked in one of the poorest countries in Africa, he, uh, he asked a lady what she would do with $150. And the answer very simple was, I will buy a cow. And then, well, if you have $300, what would you do? I said, I buy two cows. Uh, because uh, animals in, in the smallholders, poverty areas, uh, represents a very important source of food, income, and safety net. So I think we need to rethink about this. Uh, but I, in, in, in thinking the livestock uh, systems, we need to go back and see how we can make this system more efficient. Uh, how we can produce more with less emission of methane uh, or other, uh, other uh, uh, contaminants. Uh, and I think that's one of the big challenges. Uh, 
I believe uh, gene editing is going to be very important in that and will help us, especially in ruminants, to address the issue of the microbial uh, population. But unfortunately, uh, using gene editing in animals is too close to home. And so we will have to work very closely with regulations uh, to prevent the wrong use of this, you know. At the end, all of us are basically have the same nervous system, the same reproduction system, reproductive system, endocrine system, the animals. So unless we have clear uh, regulatory process, clear, clear uh, institutions, uh, I think gene editing is going to be much more difficult in animals than, than in crops. Uh, sorry, I don't, uh, I have not replied uh, to your question precisely. But I feel that that's one of the challenges that we have. How do we set the regulations um, and, and the ethical issues that will arise from using gene editing in animals? Uh, they're going to be very close to home. Uh, on the other side, there is no doubt that we need uh, animal products to have a healthy life, not in the amount that we are eating, but we need it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, I, I want to turn to you, patients. Uh, you gave us an example of how you are um, currently growing a, a very nature positive, genetically engineered, uh, genetically modified crop on your farm today, uh, the, the BT cowpea that's decreasing insecticide use on your farm. So, uh, you know, as a producer, if you think about, you know, gene editing as an efficiency increasing technology that, that has the potential to, to play a nature positive role for production. Um, I, I want to talk about sort of the, the synergies or the trade-offs. Can this both boost the lower cost of production um, across the value chain uh, to keep prices affordable, both, you know, in terms of farmers and production as, as well as um, consumers? Uh, while also improving nutrition. So can we have our cake and eat it too, if you will, or our protein and eat it too? Um, can can gene-edited gene crops um, both uh, increase pr pr uh, production, uh, improve the, the environment and the nature-positive aspects um, while providing you know, access to a healthier diet? Um, can you comment on that from a producer perspective who looks at the value chain? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that those are the strongest um, points for us, for GE in agriculture, right? So um, when we talk about the cost of production, so I think that a lot of the issues that we've had also is the fact that um, in, in other, so let me say, for instance, we grow cowpea, right? And cowpea is a nitrogen fixer. So it's basically not using you know, you don't need um, additional cow, um, nitrogen and so on. But, you know, it costs the farmer less because in, in, I think last year or the year before, we were growing cowpea and spraying at least some farmers spray up to 10 times to get rid of the maruca uh, worms that were plaguing our cowpea. With this, you spray once, maximum twice, if you, if you choose to, just to control you know, other, other insects that, that would harm it. That in itself is reducing your cost, is helping your environment. And we also always forget the health of the farmer, that GE can affect the health of the farmer, not even just in the nutrition, but in the fact that we will have 
um, crop that will also help us. So I, I would also like to speak to the fact that GE can help us with disease resistance, right? So whether with the fruits, so I'm growing bananas now. And if I have a banana that would be resistant to all sorts, black cigatoga to fungus, you know, it, it would be excellent. Apart from, of course, like it, it's been already um, said, the shelf life of, of, the, of the plants and the crop. But, you know, um, I think that when we look at the fact that we can use less. So if my corn was nitrogen fixing, I wouldn't need to add nitrogen to my soil. And, and then I would reduce a lot of the other um, complications in quotes that we say adding nitrogen to the soil would, would cause. Um, I think that it, it, is, it, it, it is such a, I mean, it has so many benefits. You know, if we look at it with fortification of the food, if we say, okay, we grow and we will, we will be able to eat our, I, I, I tweeted something, I said, you know, to eat, uh, uh, I, we can eat hell, our way to health, you know, so we can eat the crop and be healthy. But I think from a producer's perspective is the fact that if I can be more productive, which is the problem for many underdeveloped countries. What you produce, what you gain from your one hectare, is, is, it translates to a lot. So Dr. Dr. Queen was talking about smallholders having enough to eat and sell. So poverty, all of it is linked, right? So there's so many problems that we can solve by GE giving us crops that are more, more efficient, more sustainable, and we would be fixing a lot of the problems. We're looking at uh, climate change. So this year, I saw in the chat, right? We've had really bad rainfall. So if I had a climate efficient crop that would use less rain and with my very little rain, I would get a good harvest. It would ultimately translate to nutrition because the more food we have, you know, as farmers to sell, the more food we can sell cheaply because you know, the thing is scarcity drives price up. And which is why cowpea was so expensive last year. BT, um, GE has so much benefit for us as farmers and as consumers because we consume what we eat as well. And so in, 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 in underdeveloped countries, let us just look at the fact that this has the potential to revolutionize farming in addition to other tools, because we will not say GE is the silver bullet and is going to do this and do that, but it is a tool that has such great potential. And so if we come out of the food system summit without a clear path, you know, for what GE can do to benefit um, agriculture, it would simply leave us with what happened with GMO. And we would then have people who would struggle for years to be able to come up with one crop and be able to help, you know, one country to be able to do that. And like, like we had with BT cowpea and, 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 um, and cotton. You know, so I really do hope that as we go to the dialogues, the call to action is for us to, um, to have a different mindset. Let's view this world through the different lenses. Let's really, really, let's practice what we preach, right? So if we truly want to end world hunger, if we want to even try to fight it, we have to, be, we have to accept every possible tool. And so when we speak to the fact that we want nature to be maintained, we all want a healthy world. We also want people to be alive, to live in that world, right? So we don't want people to die of hunger. So we truly have to bring it all together to be able to succeed.
thank you, patience. Uh, if there's one thing 2020 and 2021 are showing us, it's that we do need a different mindset. Um, so thanks for, for that. Um, there's a lot of uh, participation from around the world. We really appreciate so many people joining today. Um, I encourage the panelists, if you have a chance to address um, any of the questions directly in the chat so that we can maximize um, our time together and get as, as many of these uh, uh, addressed. So if you, if you see something that jumps out at you, please go ahead and answer in text. Um, I, I, I see a lot of questions about um, specific geographies, specific countries and the needs in those countries. I see questions about access, which is an issue that was raised uh, by our panelists, um, needing to have access to these innovations in country to ensure that they're locally relevant in country. I've heard comments from Dr. Queen about the importance of local capacity. That's also being um, echoed in the chat. So, you know, taking all of that together, I wanna talk about the, the technology that uh, CRISPR that, uh, or gene editing that's often referred to as a, a much more democratizing technology, that it levels the playing field, that it's accessible to researchers, um, you know, no matter where in the world they are, and that it, 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 it arguably is a, is a scale neutral technology in its application. So if we think about CRISPR as a democratizing technology, you know, how can nations um, of, of all sizes, organizations of all sizes and incomes be sure, uh, ensure access, uh, have ensured access to this technology? And I'm going to look at you, Tom, um, to address this first and then open it up to Dr. Queen. Sure, that's a, that's a big, big wide question, like a lot of the questions we're talking about today. I think um, maybe to to start, I think one of the, it's not really just CRISPR. We're in a pretty remarkable time in science. And it's one of the great things when you look at science, you're always in a remarkable time. There's always these new edges that we're moving to. But, you know, today with, and it's the, the data that we're all, that's available globally, that people have access to this massive inf information store of genetic information about different crops, which is, you know, a, a, a key component of things that we have, you know, for instance, the ability relatively inexpensively to determine the genome sequence of a, of a crop that you're interested in. It's not, you know, 10 years ago, that was something that only a big corporation could do or a big institution. Today, it's a re relatively uh, inexpensive to do even a, a genome of a complicated organism. Still takes time to understand it and you need scientific expertise to do that, but that's you know, something that we do have globally. I think then we get to the, the gene editing technology itself and plant transformation technology as a basis of gene editing technology when we talk about crops. And that technology is now fairly broadly available in the crops that it's been developed and the knowledge of how to develop it. I think there's countries all over the world and, and people relatively, you know, universities and et cetera that have, have access to that kind of, of technology. So we really are in a place in a time when, uh, small laboratories at universities can do very interesting, innovative things. And I think, you know, that's, I saw a lot of questions about sort of the difference between gene editing and GMO, and maybe just to put in, in context, and I think it's why this conversation about how we regulate things is really, really important, that um, the way we're talking about GMO in a conversation like this versus gene editing is GMO typically uses something coming from another organism. So it's something that would not be achieved by breeding something called transgenic. And that typically falls into a different category in terms of how regulatory systems are looking at things. 
but you know, the re regulatory systems in GMO have gone well beyond safety assessment. They've gone into many things that are really just creating big barriers. And ultimately what that did was make it so the technology is only accessible to massive global corporations and not to uh, universities, et cetera. We think about it being patents, but really the biggest barrier to innovation and and crops has been has been the level of of, uh, of regulation that prevents small, uh, you know, golden rice being a great example of something that took but 25 years or so to, to get approved finally. Um, and this is something that was was done for the public good, not for comp companies to make money. And yet it had all these barriers. And I think that's you know a really important thing about the gene editing. If we're going to keep it in this democratized state, it is technically many people have access to the technology. If we um, you know, keep safety front of mind and ensure that we're, we're producing things that are safe, but, but efficient in how we go through these uh, approval processes, then I think that uh, it, it can have a, a big impact in the innovation. You know, as a, I, I think we haven't even begun to see how innovative people can be when they get the opportunity to use tools like this. But to that to Dr. Akeem. Thank you. Yes, I, I have to agree with Tom and um, and I'd like to add a, a couple of things. One is actually uh, what I've seen here in, in the Philippines and also in some of the uh, low middle income countries is that um, in this respect, the COVID pandemic has been, I think, uh, I think a boon to molecular biologists all over the world. Uh, it has brought interest to the field. And so I now hear my nieces and my nephews wanting to be molecular biologists. And we, countries have ramped up their capacities so that we now have this wonderful opportunity where there are increasing capacities for this kind of work. Uh, it's not that they're doing gene editing already, but they have the basic equipment, they have the basic manpower. And so with a little more training, I think that uh, it would be possible for them to do uh, gene editing and all of these innovations that are particularly relevant to their country. And, and I, I'd like to emphasize that because the three points that um, Dr. Haddad mentioned about desire and, and, uh, and trust and access are all context specific. And that's the reason why I was I was talking earlier about having uh, local experts, and and I don't mean just the scientists, even local experts like patients who have the the local knowledge of what works in their country, what their country needs, and how that can be linked to what's available from technologies like gene editing. I think that's uh, that's um, a tremendous. Um, opportunity that we have now that we can build upon. Uh, so that's one. And then uh, the other is that um, I think that there, there also needs to be some recognition of or some, um, some way to be responsive. I think this was mentioned already by other speakers and it's being mentioned also in the chat box. Responsive to what people need and what will resonate with people. And that goes beyond communication. That means also directing where the research should go. Uh, so not to fulfill some uh, maybe larger economic profit motivation, which has made people very uh, 
um, not just skeptical but angry about the original GMOs or the original research on GMO, that this needs to really address uh, basic needs of people for, for safe and nutritious food um, and also what they want from food, uh, all of the other things that uh, Dr. Haddad mentioned earlier and that patients has also alluded to. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, so we're coming to the end of our session. Uh, we've heard a lot um, about you know, the potential for the technology to transform our, our food system in terms of technology and the almost limitless opportunities, um, as, as Dr. Haddad um, put it, uh, of gene editing to improve that food system. Um, and yet we, you know, we see a lot of chatter in the chat box about the enabling environment in various countries, uh, the challenging um, science communication environment, as well as the policy environment. So I wanna end, we have you know, just, let's say two more minutes and four panelists. I wanna end by giving each of you 30 seconds uh, to, to offer us a call to action to policymakers to ensure that gene editing can live up to this limitless potential. Um, so I'll, I'll go to you, Tom, and then the ambassador, uh, Dr. Queen, and then we'll end with patience. 30 seconds, thank you for your final thoughts. Wow, that was a quick surprise. So I have to go first. So I just real quick, I, I think, you know, we're talking about a lot of different things here. I think, you know, one of the, the opportunities, and I think what's been really um, good globally about gene editing is many countries are keeping the focus on the products and not on the on the process by which those products come from, and trying to set regulatory standards that are aligned with products as opposed to um, measuring processes. And I think it's a logical, very totally logical, scientifically makes sense and can really uh, ensure that the the opportunity uh, can be can be met. Thank you. Ambassador, your call to action to policymakers. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. I think uh, my call of action will be, I mean, the science is there, the science is progressing. But my call of action will be to create a uh, stronger international collaboration, to create capacity building, to create institutions, to create processes and procedures. If we do not address those issues, the science is going to be destroyed. You know, uh, I mean, we are clear on, on the potential of this technology. But the problem is not the technology, it's what's around the technology, perception, regulations, and we are in a very divided world. So my call of action will be create a network of cooperation among the nations to solve the pressing problems of our days. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Queen. Um, well, my call to action is, has been mentioned by patients earlier, and that is to keep an open mind um, to uh, to study the technology, to understand how it can help, to also understand what its limitations are and, and even what its, uh, what its um, uh, dangers are if, there are, if there are any, and then decide, but not to decide, but not to make that decision on the basis of incomplete information or biased information or uh, on, on uh, an emotional residue from previous GMO discussions that we've had in the past. So I, I hope people will keep an open mind. Thank you. Thank you. And patients, uh, final words. What uh, is your call to action to ensure that gene editing uh, reaches its limitless potential to help transform our food systems? Um, I think that for policymakers, right, do what, what is best for your country, 
speak to people who can help to guide what is needed. I still haven't been able to get access to a national dialogue in my country, but I've spoken at so many um, uh, independent dialogues all over the world. Look at what is specific to your country and your needs. COVID has taught us that we can be individualistic sometimes, you know, so we must, must have policies that are working towards the good of the specific countries who know the specific needs, who can tailor the, 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 what is needed with GE to the specific needs of the individual countries and keep an open mind, you know, receive, you know, what you need for what you, um, what you need to advance your countries. That would be my final thoughts. Thank you. Um, thank you to all of our fantastic panelists today. I really appreciate you joining at what um, may have been inconvenient times in some corners of the world. I also want to thank our hundreds of participants who came to engage in this um, important dialogue. Um, I hope the conversation can continue on social media um, in the lead up to the Food System Summit later next month. Thank you all and, and be well. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you, bye. Thank you, bye.